Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I am the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. Autism exists independent of race, country of origin, or economic status. Despite this, people of color are less likely to receive an early diagnosis and often face a longer road toward accessing service. That leaves us with this big question. How do we close the gap? How do we provide equal access to care? We are excited to discuss this big topic with Ms. Jamie Upshaw. Jamie operates a nonprofit in Pennsylvania called Autism Urban Connection. Autism Urban Connections is the first and only African-American minority family-focused autism 501c3 nonprofit in Pennsylvania. Their mission is to educate, support, and empower families of individuals diagnosed with autism. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm super excited to talk about all that you've been able to accomplish yourself, but also what you're doing to empower others to really have a voice in the community and advocate for their own children. But before we get to that step, can you give me a little bit about your, your story, your personal story, your family story? It, it's nice to know where all this energy comes from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, first, I am a single mother of three, 21, 16, and nine, almost 10. My nine, almost 10-year-old is the one who is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. He's level one. He was diagnosed at three years and seven months of age, which is fairly late considering I attempted to get a diagnosis at around about age two. A lot of the pediatricians um, did not listen to me, the nurse practitioners, a lot of people just did not listen to me about the behaviors that I was seeing, the things that I was seeing. I was just not being heard um, because he was growing appropriately. Those were the things that they were looking at. Mm. So that's how our story began. Okay. And, and I mean, the fact that you were able to get the diagnosis at uh, three and a half years of age means that you, you were probably pretty aware and attuned to what's going on because a lot of children are slipping further away from that. And you're seeing diagnoses after age of five where these behaviors have set in and you've kind of missed a big treatment gap. So I, I, I applaud your persistence on being able to kind of push through that because um, especially within the black community, children are oftentimes not given the same information and are missing out on that crucial treatment period of early intervention. And it sounds like you were able to really advocate well for your child. Um, as you went through this process, Jamie, one thing that, I, that I'm very interested in is how did you go about finding that within your community? What did you seek out? What was your path of getting that diagnosis? So for me, 
I'm fairly educated. I was educated going into the advocacy portion for my son. I had already had a master's degree in criminal justice administration. So I had the opportunity to work with a lot of children that were misdiagnosed. Um, Mm. So I got to see a lot of things in my line of work, which allowed me um, to see that things were different in my home and for my child. Um, So it enabled me to be more vigilant in the routines that he had and Mm. I call them quirks that he has. Um, (laughs) um, So it allowed me to be a lot more vigilant. And then the advocacy portion, I just kept pushing. I, you know, I talked to the teachers. I went to anybody that would listen to me to tell them that these were the behaviors that I was seeing. Um, Mm finally referred to a psychologist who actually misdiagnosed him. But at the same time, I applaud her because she referred us to services that allowed us to get the additional services to get the diagnosis for him. Okay. Yes. So it was that it was, it was a, it was a whole lot of, um, pushing um, for that time and that advocacy piece and all of that. So it it sounds like in your situation, you had a lot of the the education, the experience, the knowledge, and it sounds like you had the resources. You had the pediatrician. You had the psychologist right there. Now that you're really ingrained in the advocacy work and, and doing the work through your nonprofit, is that similar to a lot of families or are there missing gaps that maybe you had that, you know, they're struggling to find that diagnostician or? Yes. Um, Yes, I would have to say so. I receive calls on a daily basis of a lot of families looking for um, what they call wraparound services um, or what's now, you know, referred to as applied behavioral analysis as well um, for children on the spectrum. So they're searching for these services where we know that there is a shortage of BCBAs out there. So the services are kind of limited in regards to them receiving them. The behavioral technicians, those are limited in services as well. Um, be, just because they're just not out there. A lot of families are struggling um, with finding the service coordination to help even bridge the gap in between the services that may be needed. May it be through school, may it be through um, community um, support, may it be through a number of things. What you're describing, though, Jamie, is is that there there's a there's a there's a village, there's a community that's all involved in this caretaking process for all of our kids. Yes. I, one of the things that I've been hearing, and I hear this from the payers, and I hear it from the clinical practices, is that we do have certain geographic areas, certain socioeconomic areas, that are inherently receiving less services. And unfortunately, is that you have you have cultural groups that are falling within this and racial groups that are falling in this where the black community, which you've really tried to empower through your nonprofit, is probably getting adversely affected by the lack of clinicians. 
yes. by the lack of services and resources going into the community. Can you give me uh, a, a maybe kind of an example or a story about, you know, one of the families who have gone through this where they didn't get the resources and nobody was there to support them? So I have currently, I have a family um, who I've been supporting for maybe well over two years now. And I've been to IEP meetings to help advocate through the IEP process. I've worked with her on advocating herself through the physician process. Um, She's been trained in that area. She's been um, hooked up with family resources, family support. Um, We've also tried to connect her with uh, supports for her son. However, everything is kind of like falling by the wayside. It's like the service coordinator is not keeping everybody together and the service coordinator is kind of the glue to everything Mm -hmm. and everyone. So the family's not getting everything that they need. The child is really slipping in school. The the behaviors are becoming worse, you know, and mom is like, feel like she's at a loss, you know, mm-hmm. but thank God that I'm there to support her. I am there. I am. I do phone supports as well. If you need to make a phone call to get walked through an episode, I will walk you through an episode with your child. Um, to help you get through, like I said, I do IEP meetings, um, the advocacy part. Um, I help advocate um, at the physician level. We do trainings on that um, because there's the difference between aggression and advocacy. And, you know, a lot of us Black people, unfortunately, we are perceived to be aggressive opposed to advocating for our children when we really just want what's best for our children. Mm-hmm. So those are pretty much a lot of the things that, you know, we see that the glue is falling apart. Yeah. And I mean, it's a, it's a sad state, but it's, it's true is that it, it's a misconceived perception that advocating could be aggression. And unfortunately for the black community, you, you're probably receiving that feedback mislabeled way too frequently, which causes barriers. I mean, any sort of treatment relies on trust, communication, access, and a partnership. And if somebody automatically walks into a relationship and they feel that you're being aggressive and it's not an aggressive stance, and it's an advocacy stance, and simply because of, of who you are, the color of your skin is that it's mislabeled, is that that creates a barrier to treatment that's right there from the beginning. And that's, that's tough. It's something that isn't talked about a lot, probably outside of the Black community, but it, it's important for everyone to realize. Absolutely. Um, so, and, and so as, you, as you've kind of worked through a lot of these things, and I mean, looking at Autism Speaks right now and what they're saying for the Black community is that, that it, there is no question that there's a lack of quality resources a lack of medical providers who really understand autism. There's the, there's the stereotypes for the community that are uh, causing misdiagnoses or a horrible representation of specific things, which happens at the child level too. And 
what are some of the things that urban uh, autism urban connections is doing to be able to help remedy this on the educative side to help people understand that the microaggressive behaviors or things like that are causing an impact in autism as well well what we do we're very very heavy on trainings on parent trainings um we we do a lot a lot of parent trainings just so that the parents can know basically how to handle themselves when they're in any situation Mm -hmm. um and also what we do is empower our parents to let them know that they are their child's voice. No one knows their child like they do and do not allow anyone to override what you know is true to be. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you take notes. Make sure that if you go to a doctor's appointment, you can take someone with you to take notes just in case you miss anything. You know, like there are a number of ways that you can make sure that that you stay on top of it to to make sure that you stay on top of it. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that uh, I've seen more recently is even within the clinical communities, you're starting to see more awareness and you're actually starting to see a higher level of emphasis to recruit and bring different communities representation into your clinical practices. And I know that you had mentioned that you're studying to become a BCBA, which I applaud. I think that it's wonderful to have more people out there. Thank you. But that piece of it has to help as well. I know that there's cultural studies saying that if somebody really understands the culture of the, the patient that they're working with is that the patient care goes up. So a lot of bringing more uh, better patient care into the black community probably is also a component of let's get more black clinicians in, in all communities, but let's also give that voice because that's going to help educate all other clinicians, but it also gives the family the chance to have somebody that looks like them, talks very similar and has similar life experiences at times as far as understanding that that racial bias that exists to help have their voice and not feel like they have to stifle it. Is that something you're seeing in the clinical community in Pittsburgh right now? Um, Yeah, that we, we don't have a lot of people that look like us. We probably need to have a lot more. I think if given more opportunity, um, we may have more black clinicians. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we have those racial biases that we're not always aware of, you know, that impacts the hiring process, which impacts the delivery of services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that needs to start with that you talked about education, but it's community education, but it's also the, the spread of that education all the way through organizations. To help realize the benefit of having a broad, diverse culture within your workforce and to support every component of that. So I think what you're saying, it's very true. And I think it's, it's something we all need to continue to work on. There's never going to be a perfect answer, but we all need to continue to work on it and understand that to identify the problem first and then start working through some of those challenges and making it apparent and not hiding any of the deficits that we're running into. Right. What the studies are showing right now is that unless it's a child with severe autism, is that a lot of the children who are 
autism and the level one kind of criteria and who have a lot of great skills, they're being missed through the system. And they're being misdiagnosed and they're being misdiagnosed. They're being misdiagnosed um, or they're not being diagnosed at all. And we're seeing a lot of that commonly in our African-American neighborhood, in our Mm -hmm. communities, rather, just because it's just a cultural difference. They're causing our kids to be diagnosed with conduct disorders, um, behavioral disorders, our ADHDs, um, you know, so we got our kids kids being medicated for incidences or for behaviors that aren't even um, the behaviors that need to be medicated for. Um, Mm. So, yeah, so you have a lot, a lot of misdiagnosis. A lot of our kids are diagnosed with ADHD or that conduct disorder, um, disruptive, disruptive behavior disorder. And I can speak on a personal level that that was our story at first. Those were Mm -hmm. all the things that he was diagnosed with before he was diagnosed with his autism spectrum disorder um, level one. Which is so disappointing just because the intensity of treatment that's needed or that's provided typically for a child with autism is not the same level of care or intensity that you're going to get for a conduct disorder or disruptive behavior uh, or emotional behavioral disorder is that if you're missing that key time because of a misdiagnosis, that almost sets back several years of development of educational access and the ability to be able to have social relationships because you're not getting the treatment, which creates a larger gap. And I know that we want to shrink the gap. We want to we want to start making sure that treatment is all the same. But unless we solve this problem of being able to get appropriate access to care and get the diagnosis and get the treatment in, is that that gap will always be there. What was your experience with um, with telemedicine? Because that's something that it it has it was sprung on everybody during. Um. COVID. And it was, it was sprung on us and um, we had to kind of jump right on into it and, and go for what we know. And um, it was a learning experience. I can honestly say it was a learning experience. Um, But what it did for me as a parent, it taught me a lot more um, as to how to help my child. I learned more techniques. I learned more things to do. So it helped me to help him a lot better. And the flexibility and access to care piece. That's another thing that I consistently hear is that I know that in my household, my wife and I are both working. Like we are out and about constantly trying to do our jobs. And, and I would imagine in a lot of communities is that you have two breadwinners or you have a single parent that is trying to do this. They can't be at home doing it all the time. And having the flexibility of telemedicine has got to be empowering to be able to bring care. It is. It definitely is. It, It definitely is. It gives me time to say, okay, I can do this. I can do that. I can work it on in. You know, it, it, definitely gives me flexibility and it's something appreciated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I hear your passion. I hear all the work that you've been doing. There's one thing that I'd love to hear a little bit more about is it's, it's the listen up, close the gap campaign. So tell me about how that works and what, what the goal and the initiative behind it is. So 
the goal and initiative behind it is there was a study that came out in August of 2020, and it demonstrated the effects that um, it's taken. Uh, it's about three years in between the time that the doctor listens to the parents um, mm-hmm. or the parents to receive uh, actual um, uh referral to get a diagnosis mm-hmm. and three years is way too long for a doctor to finally listen to you to give you a referral to get the evaluation because pediatricians or pediatricians you know what i mean they can't do the evaluation they shouldn't be what well, they shouldn't be doing the evaluation not fully like that anyway like i said with that three year it just like threw me for a loop because it just solidified everything that i had been saying for years about how the black community is just not being heard and how we're not being listened to and that's why the resources and the supports and the education is just not in the communities because the doctors don't want to listen to us and so that's where the whole campaign came in that. And so I basically just wanted the doctors that see children to take a pledge to say, I will listen to these parents of these children now. And if they see something noted and I'd rather them give them the referral for the evaluation to come back to say no, opposed to them not get the referral. And then years down the line, we needed the referral and they missed out on years of services. Mm-hmm. No, and, and that's that's something that you don't get back. You don't get that time back. I, I remember don't. reading this. I think it was this. Uh, I think the study came out of Washington University in St. Louis, uh, the, or at least one of the follow-up studies. And when I read, that what they're seeing is a three-year gap from first notification of the parents to actually getting care, it blew my mind. It, it doesn't even, it didn't register to me that this is happening on a regular basis. So it hurt the fact my that, feelings. <laughs> it should. It should very much hurt your feelings. Is that you knew something was awry and you were seeing something that you wanted support on. You asked for that support and what you got was, the wrong answers. There are sometimes no answers, which is, I can't, I, I personally can't imagine going through that. And you took that and turned it into a very productive campaign and which I applaud because I think that as much as we can be frustrated by something, it takes somebody's initiative to say, I'm going to turn that into something we could all learn and grow from. Mm -hmm. And if pediatricians can start to listen and hear and understand that, you know, I need to take into account everything that the family's telling me while I'm trying to formulate my opinion on referrals or on diagnoses is that that becomes a very powerful parental voice where you're not having to to fight for your child and instead you're partnering for your child, which is so so, so what advice do you have for parents uh, uh, in the black community for, uh, for children with autism? Um, my advice is stay steadfast. If you know that there's something going on with your child, stay steadfast, keep pushing, get somebody to listen to you. It's okay to get a second opinion for your child. You are your child's voice. So make sure that you use it and use it accordingly to make sure that your child gets the appropriate diagnosis. So 
And, and I think that I think staying steadfast, Jamie, is is a great piece of advice to give. Um, I also think that it's a matter of helping people to understand what you're going through, sharing your perspective. Um, there's a lot. Of, I was educated today through our conversation. Great. So every time where being that being shared, it shouldn't rely just on the family to have to do it. Is that if we all feel comfortable sharing our experiences then we all learn and grow together and the treatment becomes the most important thing. And we're able to make sure that we're all part of that same treatment team. So I appreciate the fact that you came on and shared this. Is there, is there a way that people can get more information about the autism urban connections about um, any upcoming events, anything that you can share with us? Sure, you can visit our website at www.aucofpgh.org or you can give me a simple phone call at 412-853-0115 and I'll be willing to talk to you. And I know that with... 501c3s and being a nonprofit is that one of the biggest things to being able to, to really get your message out, to have the right technologies behind everything you're trying to deliver is resources. Is, um, and I would imagine that they, people might be able to donate through some of these things to be able to help broaden the platform and provide a larger voice. Yes, yes. There's a donate button on our website, so you can donate through that platform. Um, I think there's a donate button on our um, Facebook page as well. You can find us on Facebook at Autism Urban Connections, Inc. Um, So I think there's a link on there as well, but you can definitely donate on the um, website. Well, thank you again, Jamie. Your willingness to share your story, your willingness to advocate, is definitely going to play dividends for a lot of people out there and especially in the communities that your voice is being heard. So I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Once again, through this podcast, as I had a chance to to learn and do a little bit of self-realization and understanding that everybody's experience is so different. And for the Black community is the biases that are out there have created some inherent problems with our treatment and diagnostic process. Uh, There's less diagnoses, it's happening later, and families aren't getting the same access to treatment. And this is something that we need to start talking about so we can fix and that we can start to get the treatment to the children at the right times. Jamie's story is hopefully creating more of this dialogue, more of this conversation, and her work is putting it at the forefront to let those diagnosticians and pediatricians really start to get the ball moving down the path in the right place. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com.
Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.